Welcome back to the Dungeon Master's Block, the place where we come to talk about the Dungeon Master, the most important person in the game, the only person capable of playing God, killing characters, and lowering the egos of all the people at the table. I'm one of your hosts, DM Neil, aka Jote Maniac. And today, DM Chris and I have a returning guest in Mackenzie de Armas, who is returning to talk to us about a monster known as the Slithering Bloodfin. And we have a ton of other wonderful under-the-sea ideas of how to introduce massive monsters into your game. But rather than say anything else, let's head to the meat. I'm starving. We ain't had nothing but maggoty bread for three stinking days. Why can't we have some meats? Looks like meat's back on the menu, boys. So today on The Meet, we have a returning guest, someone who we said would return, and we made good on that promise. Huzzah! Yes. Uh, we haven't made good on all of the promises. Don't worry about it. <laughs> but today we have back with us McKinsey DeArmas, the associate game designer for D&D and one of the writers on Call of the Nether Deep, which will be very applicable uh, to the discussion at hand. McKinsey, thanks for coming back. Thank you so much for reinviting me. I've, yes. I've always been like watching like my email like, ooh, can I come back? Can I come back yet? <laughs> yes, Is it time? We, yes. And we were very excited to have you back. So one of the questions, since we were kind of doing this small interview again, but mm-hmm. like what's happened? What's going on with you since the last time you were here? Oh, gosh. So much has come out. Um, since the, I think the last time uh, Strixhaven, A Curriculum of Chaos released, which was my uh, first top line credit working at the D&D studio. I got to do a lot of work on that book with some of the monsters, some of the mascots, some of the spells, some of the cool uh, magic stuff, and a lot of the backgrounds of living at a magical university like that, which was super fun and exciting. Uh, My joke was always, I graduated university only to get a job and immediately get thrown right back into writing about university. (laughs) (laughs) Which is exactly uh, what you want to do when you're done. Which is, yes, 100%. I'm free. I'm no longer free. Uh, Reliving some of our trauma from university times, right? (laughs) Always. Yeah. The amount of, (laughs) the amount of uh, student personality traits that are pulled from actual people I maybe sort of knew in passing in university is a non-zero amount. Yeah. Yep. Right. Exactly. We don't write about people whom none of our NPCs in our games are based off of actual people that we know. That would not be good. The names have been changed to protect the innocent. (laughs) Any similarities to real people is entirely there coincidental. Yes, right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. well, I just have to ask this question. What was that like the first time, like, you knew you were working on this project. What mm-hmm. was it like the first time you actually, like, saw your name on a finished copy of a and d book? What was that like for you? Oh, my goodness. It was one of the coolest and also the most surreal feelings ever. I remember very much... Uh, like going into a a store and like finding the book and like mm. being able to open it and being like, oh, that's my name in a book. Uh, and then I had a bunch of my friends and my family who were we went out of their way to go to like a Barnes and Noble to find <laughs> the book. And we're like, look, it's you. And I'm like, it is me. Oh, that's that's weird. Uh, it, it has also happened, though, that I have opened that book and I've started reading it and went, oh, wow, this is really good. And then I have a pause and go, wait a minute, this is familiar. Wait a minute. I wrote this. I completely <laughs> forgot I wrote this. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> well, because you think about I guess it's that, that I guess it's better time. that way than being like, oh yeah. no, why did I write that? <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, I also have some of that when it comes to some of the monsters. I'm like, oh my, I 
I did that? They let me do that? That's terrifying. That's so good. Like one of the monster's yeah. abilities is like consume and destroy. And that made it to print. And I was like, oh, they let me, they let me keep that. Oh, that's beautiful. Well, that, that's where the new line is that I will operate from and to observe where I can find online afterwards. I mean, if I've already anytime cons- I see consume and destroy now, I'll be like, now I know, know where that came from. Yes. It's fun because it's a it's an ability that lets you uh when a spellcaster casts a spell at this monster, the monster goes, <laughs> no, Uno reverse. Nice. So, Chris, I know you have a surprise question. I think we'll jump straight there yes. because the, because as we will know, when we ask someone straight from the D and D team what they're currently working on, that's not really a question that they can answer. So let's jump ahead and we'll just go straight for the surprise. So the surprise question for you, Mackenzie, is because mm-hmm. we're talking about all things like sea creatures in the deep. Mm-hmm. If you could be any deep sea creature, like you're just going to be polymorph forever into this creature what would you be and why uh uh, parameters for the question real life creature no no parameters you're good either way we've only explored we've only explored like five percent of the ocean so who knows what's out there you know cool i i will go with so there's there's quite a few um i personally really love sharks Uh, i have a little plushy shark on my wall here uh i've got three plushy sharks somewhere else in the the house uh, and I, I think sharks are very adorable and I would quite, I think it would be fun to be a shark despite the uh, caveat of you have to keep swimming or you die. <laughs> My other favorite answer is, uh, and they're not, they're not necessarily sea creatures, but they're sea creature adjacent and they're absolutely terrifying. And I quite love them for that is the coconut crab. I don't actually know what that is. It is the coconut crab is the animal I like to present as the example when people ask me what a real life sneak attack looks like. Oh yes, I have seen these things before. You're uh, right, they terrifying. Hunt, they hunt birds. They hunt birds. The they first will... video that pops up after a Google search is coconut crab, your worst nightmare. <laughs> yep. Yep. Uh they are durable, absolute beasts. They have been caught on video climbing up into a tree and sneak attacking a bird and snipping its wings off to eat it later. They are massive for crabs and they really, they just, they just shouldn't exist. And yet they do despite God. And I want that energy in my life. There are many homebrew coconut crabs out there Mm -hmm. that people have made Mm -hmm. that I may or may not steal now and throw at my players. Yes. Because what better than to snip it? Players' arms off to wait to eat them later, you know? Well, and to <laughs> to go full circle, here at my here at my desk is this wooden shark uh that my grandpa had on his desk. Um yes. uh, so I'm yes. right there with you. Sharks. Yes. And sharks yeah. are the cute answer. Yes. Sharks are cute and adorable and I love them. Uh and then if I'm like if I go down to my deep my my the essence of who I am as a person. I think it might be more coconut crab than shark. I like it. Just a little well, gremlin who exists to defy expectations and spite God and make it regret what it's created. <laughs> I do not have a shark in my office, but I do have a giant panda <gasps> that's pink for my daughter that I can that's move. Beautiful. So, you know, I feel like, I feel like you guys threw stuff up from your office. So I had to do something. Not 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 a uh, not a shark, but still a sea creature. I have a very angry octopus. Perfect. Well, since 
since we are on the topic, we are going to dive. We're going to dive deeper. Um, <laughs> prepare yourselves for for as many undersea jokes as I can apparently make. Because today we, as the episode is titled "Under the Sea," um, and with the call of the Nether Deep, we wanted to have you on, and we wanted to showcase some of the stuff from that book, but also talk about yes. how you're adding those to your world, you're adding those to your mm-hmm. your campaign. Be it everything's underwater, be it pieces of it underwater, but we wanted it again. Mm-hmm dive deep so we're gonna i'm gonna throw it straight to you and what do you have to present to us for this monstrous episode okay so i'll start with the the monster that appears on the back cover of the book which is one of my favorites to design partially from a mechanical standpoint but also partially from the philosophy that we took uh, when making all these monsters was uh, which was that the most horrifying monsters are the ones that have some semblance of a base in reality. And so the monster from the book that I think epitomizes that perfectly is called the Slithering Bloodfin, which is the creature that appears sort of curling out of the crimson depths on the back cover. It is this massive shark eel-like creature that has a toothy maw. It can swallow creatures whole and siphon life out of it in order to heal its own wounds. Uh, and when it dies, it explodes in a big cloud of toxic blood. And, and so it is was, large as well. It right? is It is large. It is It is large enough to swallow a medium creature pretty easily. It's such a yes. good, I mean, it's such a good place to start because I think one of the things about going undersea is that mm-hmm. while the players, you know, they're <laughs> their realm if you will is a five foot square or a cube yes. even if you want to kind of expand that out but the but the biggest thing about going undersea is that the scale changes dramatically mm-hmm. because even if you're in like a, a dragon's lair or something like that there are still some limits on that because you are under ground once you're underwater though like all bets are off um so i think mm-hmm. yeah having something really big to like illustrate to the players like the scale that you're working with is really really fun yeah well i just i think too like if you're underwater even if you have like the ability to breathe right the way like dark vision Mm -hmm. and stuff works can you imagine at like the edge of your dark vision all of a sudden this big wave of some Mm -hmm. sort of slithering sea creature going by that's like blood like yep there's so many things that just scream terrifying Mm -hmm. in that that's just like you can mess with the you can mess with your players so much to create this sort of like horrific moment of you see a large dark red scaly something slithering through the water just at the edge of your vision and like that it's gone and they're just like yep uh what (laughs) what's happening now yeah like those moments are great my favorite thing about the slithering bloodfin is that when it came to designing that monster, I got to draw on a lot of uh, my weird esoteric knowledge about sea creatures that came about when I was really hyper fixated on learning about the deep sea, uh, specifically deep sea like reptiles. The most venomous snakes out there to exist, I believe, are the sea snakes. And people laugh at the idea of sea snakes because they're like, oh, it's a little noodle wiggling through the water. Th- those things are terrifying. People think eels are terrifying. Sea snakes are that plus unhinging the jaw plus the venom. And I've always loved them. I've always loved them as the uh, the root of what people imagine when they create big sea serpents or, or fantastical ones, knowing that there is a real life precedent for that. 
and getting to build this creature that could have gone in a very fantastical sea serpent, uh, almost like, like, I don't want to say Loch Ness monster, but kind of like a very fantastical route, but instead getting to go, I want to go and base this off real things. Mm-hmm. I want to base this mm-hmm. off real horrors in the deep. And then on top of that, add the, the fantastical flavoring, not as a way to make this creature seem more fantastical, but as a byproduct of the very cursed environment it lives in. Yeah. And I think that having those, I mean, and you've brought it up and just to really like triple down on it. Like if you are creating monsters for your own world, having those touchstones in reality really helps because if, mm-hmm. uh, depending on the game, certainly you can have a game that is so alien that, that that's part of, part of the allure is that those things are so unknown. You, you, you know, you're, you're on a world where nothing has eyes um, because they all have um, some type a uh, different type of sensory, but like mm-hmm. that's, that's the precedent for the unicorn because they're like, hey, we saw this narwhal thing. So there's got to be a land version somewhere, right? So mm-hmm. we're going to invent the myth of the unicorn because clearly it should exist. If it exists here, it should exist there. Um, so yeah, mm-hmm. I love the idea of taking the the normal size, still very terrifying sea snake and just being like, oh, but what if we turned it to 11? How about that? Yeah, well, I think too, like, you know, what you're talking about, about taking something that's like kind of based in reality a little bit, like, when we do that sort of stuff, you know, I think of like hellhounds or like any sort of these creatures that like could evoke real life emotions out mm-hmm. of our players because we resonate with that. Like there are, I, I remember going to the shed aquarium here in Chicago and walking past the anaconda exhibit. And I hate snake, absolutely hate snakes. And just seeing that that thing was like, you know, mm-hmm. massive, like basketball size around. I was like, nope, I got to get out of this. I can't do it. It's not getting out of the glass, yeah. but I, I can't do it. You know, I've never seen the Anaconda movies in my life because I'm terrified of snakes. But like that for me, if somebody were to be like, all right, we're up against this, like this massive sea serpent creature. As a DM, it might be therapeutic for me to like incorporate that and work through some of my uh, terrifiedness. But like if a if a DM did me, I'm like, nah, we're killing this thing or we're we're GTFO and out of yep. here. We're, yep. we're out, you know. Yep. But I think that's what I think that's yep. what like real life things mm-hmm. do, like things that are semi-based in reality, mm-hmm. they can help evoke some of those emotions within our players, not in like a we want to traumatize them sort of way, right? But yes. like it helps us connect with something a little bit deeper than being like, Hey, here's a here's a alien coming from a different place. Like we mm-hmm. we don't know how to resonate necessarily yeah. with that, right? Yeah. It's always yeah. fun uh, for me, uh, comfortably terrifying my players uh, and, and presenting them, uh, especially with like monsters like the Bloodfin, where it is reality slightly to the left, uh, which allows them, as I paint the picture with my words as a dungeon master, they're still able to fill in the gaps easily. And I always love leaving a little bit of space to the imagination because I am a firm believer that the scariest things are the things that we come up with in our own heads. And that is one of my favorite things to do with the Dungeon Master is just leave a little bit of space for them to imagine and realize this creature in their own headspace. Uh, and, and then in turn, come up with really cool and awesome ways to, to move around it, to fight it. I hesitate to say befriend it because I don't think that would work. But, you know, some <laughs> people try. Unless um, you're like Voldemort or something, you know. Well, the, the, the other thing I think is like, because we, we, we've hit on it mm-hmm. in the just to hit on it and then we'll, we'll move past, but always to talk about the idea that there is something, there are two fundamentally different spaces between feeling scared and feeling unsafe at the table. Mm-hmm. 
and just ensuring that yep. you 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 can always you, I mean theoretically you can stay in one all the time as long as you don't dip into the other one. Mm-hmm. Um, just to, just to toss that out there. Yep. Um, so the other thing I think is like how do you how would each of us introduce this creature to our players for the first time? Because I have a few ideas in my head, but I don't wanna, I'll throw it out. Just hopefully you'll use up all my ideas and I'll be like, oh great, next question. <laughs> I have, because you want to go first? I have many ideas. Yes. Um, I always, I'm a big fan of, I'm a big fan of environmental storytelling when it comes to especially introducing big creatures like these into uh, a setting. I loved what, what you were talking about earlier about just at the very edges of your vision through the depths of the ocean, seeing this sort of streak move through the water. If you've ever played like video games that kind of harp on that idea of, like being submerged into a, a space that's dark and only getting a little bit of your field of vision out into that distance where you can only see a shadow sort of moving through the water. Uh, I always find that so evocative and it immediately sort of gets, uh, it gets that sense of there is danger present. It is not something we have to confront immediately, but it is something we are going to have to contend with and that is unavoidable. Uh, and I think that is, that's a super fun way of introducing it. Uh, giving your players a chance to prepare, take stock of where they are and whether or not they want to nope out of there or keep going. But also it characterizes the environment, Uh, a place that is inhabited by this big predator. Would there be prey animals? Would there be schools of fish sort of here? Or would it be completely desolate because the animals know better than to be around where this creature hunts? Yeah, and I I think one of the interesting questions that that brought me up brought up Mm -hmm. with me to answer before kind of making some of these decisions was how smart is a creature and to some degree like how long does that creature live and those probably Mm -hmm. end up going in tandem because you think about the idea of just like ooh, here's my next Mm -hmm. meal i'm going to do everything i can to consume that now Uh, or the other is a much more like a more intelligent longer lived version Mm of oh no i can wait and I can wait until it's the opportune moment. Um, mm-hmm. And then you have, you could potentially have um, days of seeing this at the edge mm-hmm. uh, because it, because it could know, or it could sense, especially if at higher levels, it, mm-hmm. does it sense the magic? Does it sense the power? Yes. So it wants to better understand the party before yep. engaging. Uh, there's also uh, not to harp on the snakes thing. Uh, I will, I will, uh, I will say this and then move on very quickly. Uh, <laughs> This creature very much does the thing that a lot of snakes do where it'll swallow prey whole. And the reason why real life snakes do that is that it just takes them a very long time to slowly digest. So with that in mind, drawing that line from real life uh, biology and zoology to uh, this fantastical creature, this is a kind of creature that could eat a large creature and then not have to eat for a bit. So we can just kind of hide and just wait. And I think that's horrifying. Because if you also, because this also was extrapolated from moray eels, which love to hide in crevices underwater. Mm -hmm. So this thing can just, when it attacks, it may not be attacking because it's hungry, because it ate something a long time ago and it's still digesting it. It could attack because you simply just got too close to its its home and it's just like, no, I don't want to deal with you. Get out. I, I really like the idea of this being like, there's the terrifying route, obviously like in the depths, you have this thing, you know, that, but I also, I I love the idea of like a party sitting down in a coastal city 
and they roll up to like the salty dog tavern or something like that. And there's like a senile old dwarf in the corner who's like, have you guys ever seen Hey Arnold before? Like the episode oh, where yeah. there's like the fishing tournament in the, like the local lake there. And the grandpa's like, back in my day, I almost caught this big fish and it like broke off his spear or whatever. And like the old guy, the old dwarf is like, man, I, you know, this is all I have left is this fragment of the steering wheel of the mm-hmm. ship, you know, that this thing destroyed. And nobody believes in that this is like a real thing. But then there's like boats start missing. Right. Yep. And you have this moment where it's like, we heard this story from this guy reminiscent. And then like one person comes back and says, I saw it a large red fin that protruded out of the water before it attacked our ship, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's like, and then you're starting to connect all of these dots because you've laid these pieces there. And the senile old dwarf and the salty dog in is no longer senile and full of it. He actually knows more than what's like mm-hmm. led on those sorts of like elements are super fun for me oh, to yeah. think through of like, it was lore, right? You can do that. Have yep. like, you're in the middle of a jungle, right? And you have this mm-hmm. tribe that like worships this serpentine creature, right? Feeding it, you know, it lives in like this bay at the edge of a waterfall and they like throw food down to it or mm-hmm. gold, you know, whatever it is to try and prevent it from uh, killing them when they try to cross the river to the other side. You know, like there's so many different mm-hmm. of those sort of like tribalistic lore sorts of ways that you can incorporate sea monsters they just kind of like lend themselves really naturally to that way of being introduced. Mm -hmm. That just seems really fun to me. Yeah. Like sort of bouncing off of that, because I did actually do a lot of research into uh, for previous projects. I had done a lot of research into like pre-colonial Filipino myths. Uh, And Mm -hmm. because they are an Island nation, uh, they have a lot of those kinds of stories. And I've always found it so interesting looking at how they took uh, how they interpreted the world around them and how they interpreted uh, creatures of the deep. Um, I think uh, as as much as I love like the the idea of like this this creature that they feed just so that it doesn't come and like attack them. I always love when I was doing research. I loved how when there were real life instances of that, there was always like another layer of it of these people almost forming a symbiotic relationship. And I think that's the cool thing about a lot of these creatures is that they don't really have an alignment. They are just beasts and they exist. And I think to sort of build off of your idea, again, drawing a little bit more from like real life, but slightly to the left, uh, this maybe like a cove or a uh, a group of uh, druids or other, uh, or an, even just maybe a whole island that is guarded by this massive serpent, and the islanders have a symbiotic relationship with this serpent, um, where they are able to feed it and help alleviate its, its hunger, and in, it in turn prevents uh, pirates or other people from discovering this sort of secret island. On the converse side, there are other myths about giant uh, creatures in those kinds of cultures that deal with uh, big threats like eclipses and, and and apocalypses and that sort of deal. And something they would do is they'd have festivals about these creatures where they would, as part of the festival, they would make a lot of noise. They would bang on drums and, and, and shout and cry to the sky because that in their myths, that is how they got the sea creatures to let go of the moon or that that's how they scared it away. And I think sort of building off of your idea, the idea of having this sort of coastal sediment and having the party arrive in the middle of one of these festivals where they do have this massive 
legend about these kinds of creatures and they talk about the ways that they have defended and kept these creatures at bay for years. Uh, but something is either pushing that creature into a frenzy and the noise or this, the festival isn't enough anymore or something else is going on. Uh, perhaps an outside force is manipulating that creature beyond its will to uh, attack and destroy uh, that whole coastal chain of civilizations. There is so much to play in with the relationship of monsters to society, and I find it so infinitely, endlessly fascinating. Yeah, the, the, you know, you're talking about it reminds me of the relationship that Davy Jones has with the Kraken mm-hmm. in uh, the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, where it's like, yeah, they could very easily, something like that, if it's a symbiotic relationship, could be used to protect an island nation or... It could be weaponized really quickly, mm-hmm. you know, to be able to, you know, it follows a certain pirate ship and helps, you know, whatever it could be. Yeah. Oh, I mean, man. sea monsters could very easily be weaponized, too, if they do have a, some sort of sentience and yep. could build that sort of relationship with them. Oh, now I'm just imagining a pirate ship, but it has an at its prow instead of like a, a carving of like a, a, a woman. It is the carving of like a slithering blood fin. And it's got like the studded spikes made of like carnelian mm-hmm. or ruby that like kind of glow in the night. And you can see it like cresting through the fog of uh, this massive Oh, I almost want to say because the the slithering bloodfin scales are almost pale, so you see this pale prow mm. jutting through the night fog. Ooh, with yeah, these yeah. Slightly magically luminescent <clears throat> red carnelian spikes cresting down the prow, going along the railings of the ship, and then swirling in the water ahead of it are those same spikes, except they're much bigger and attached to a much bigger, how terrifying muscular creature. Yeah. Well, I like, and yeah, I mean, you think like now, like, yeah, boats out in the water have mm-hmm. to have the red and green lights, right? But in a D&D world, it may be completely covered in magical illuminated crystals, right? Mm-hmm. That they've acquired over time and mm-hmm. not ever seeing that out on the water before fishermen or other boats would be like, I'm sorry, what am I seeing right now? <laughs> like, this is not, I'm we sorry. kind of know that fog what? is natural, but. Yeah. Illuminating lights in the fog. Not me. Not me, man. It's like, I'm, I'm sorry. No, I did not <laughs> sign up for this. Goodbye. Turn the boat around. Let's go. Yep. Yep. I, I'll, I'll pay you for whatever it takes to, to make me not be here. But I think of. Like, well, and yeah, I mean, that that like begs the question, like, could, you know, I'm reading the Kith and Kin book right now for Critical Role. And like that sort of story of like you get sent to do one mission and like it's not all it's like cracked up to be there's like different layers like somebody sends in their crew that they've hired to go and find this blood fin this this ship or whatever it's stolen something and then you're up against something more dangerous it just sounds right up the alley of an oligarch in a dnd world but the the other thing i think is like having an entire uh, a people group uh, a nation um however large you want to scale scale that on purpose. Hey. Um, hey. Fun count number two. We're back. Um, but they literally just call them the blood fins. Like, how cool is that? Like, um, and then jump jumping off from that point, and just so many, like you said. And I think those narrative moments from the points of trying to understand, because if if the players have engaged with this creature prior to meeting the people that have the symbiotic relationship, there's a lot that narratively needs to be understood between those two peoples that that lends itself mm-hmm. to some really good moments um outside of rolling um for combat between those so yeah. so good or even vice versa if they meet the group beforehand and learn some of the customs of like mm-hmm. 
how they interact mm-hmm. with the blood fin. They run across the blood fin in the wild and it's like they now know how to create a peaceful situation instead of immediately like turn the cannons on this blood fin. We've got to kill it. It's yep. dangerous. What the heck is yep. this thing? You know, it yep. just adds for really cool story uh, mm-hmm. moments for the players. Um, I also very briefly, uh, because I know a lot of players uh, and this is the joke that kind of ran through a little bit of the book was, Oh God, it's the obligatory underwater level. Um, <laughs> it's and the I know, water temple in Legend yeah. of Zelda. Huzzah. Gosh, no water mechanics. <laughs> wow. Uh, and so I very briefly want to touch on the idea that like, even though these creatures are originally intended to be at home in, in the water, there are certainly ways you can, uh, as a dungeon master, if you really like the creatures, you can definitely extrapolate them uh, from a, a, a watery environment to uh, whatever fits in your campaign. Uh, I know uh, if you're in my D&D campaign, d- d- spoilers, don't don't listen to me. <laughs> I am certainly um, planning on incorporating some of the Netherdeep monsters into uh, my current campaign. Uh, not. And the thing is, is they're in a city. They're in a city. They mm. There is like some coastal areas. There is like some docks and stuff, but it certainly isn't where you would normally. There isn't like a lot of depth there. It is the coast is the docks. There isn't enough room for a massive blood fin or some of the other creatures that are found in the Netherdeep book up uh, to make an appearance there. What I do have, though, <coughs> is a sprawling and terrifying undercity, a massive ra- uh, network of sewage pipes and other broken, destroyed places underneath the city. And it's very easy, at least in my mind, to extrapolate the sort of three-dimensional movement of uh, what occurs in underwater combat to these kinds of spaces, translating uh, an underwater cavern set of, of winding tunnels that you may find the slithering, slithering bloodfin lurking in uh, to a more urban sort of setting where it's instead of lurking in these uh submerged <laughs> tunnels it's instead lurking in this sort of grimy damp putrid uh sewer system it still has the same elements of seeing something move through the shadows it still has that element of hearing sounds and hearing them echo through these caverns or these these oh, walls yeah. or through the water and hearing the cry of the blood fin out in the distance uh, and being not sure where it comes from because you don't have a direct path between you and the creature that is making that noise. But it is it is in a way that is flows seamlessly into the campaign and the setting that I have created, which I think is super fun because I yeah. love these monsters and I'm going to throw them at my players. <laughs> yeah, you kind of helped write them, so it only makes sense. Yes. You know? yeah. They are going am- to face the jellyfish and whether they like it or not. <laughs> 60 foot tentacles coming their way. Fun, fun fact from fun fact from development. That's the tamed down version. Whoa. Is it really? Yeah. The original, I read that and I was like, I'm sorry. That's, that's terrifying. Yeah, the original, uh, <laughs> this is not the blood fin, uh, for people listening. This is talking about the death embrace, which is a massive jellyfish that can petrify you. No big deal. Um, mm. in the stat block, it has a tentacle attack. It's a melee weapon. At- it's a melee attack with a reach of 60 feet. And that is the toned down version, because when I got the the narrative uh, draft for that stat block, it originally had a reach of 100 plus feet. Whoa. I think it was 120 originally. That's uh, and crazy. I That's went, like multiple rounds to get close enough to it to actually like, mm-hmm. do something outside of attacking the tentacle. I mean, the cool thing is, is that 
the, the jellyfish, when it attacks you, it pulls you closer. So you don't have to use your turn to get close. Mm-hmm. That's true. That's true. <laughs> you just, you know, maybe you don't want to. I'd, I'd rather close. move closer on my own, not grapple. Yeah. <laughs> it also can use you as a meat shield. That's the yeah. other cool part about its tentacles. It can just move you and be like, nah, I don't want to get hit by this fireball. You take the damage instead. So the, your your description of the sewer reminded me of like the thought I had for the introduction because you can basically have like almost that horror film mm-hmm. scenario where you hear that rumbling or you see those things um, off at the edge of sight and then you have that. My preference would probably be to choose an NPC to like kind of move out to the edges and then if it's under the sea, my thought would be just it crashes through. But also because of the scale, like having some sort of role because that wake, you know, you're literally caught in its wake. Um, and mm-hmm. then how how um, separated is your group afterwards? And certainly one person would have been swallowed whole. But I think those same things like the tremors underneath the ground. Mm-hmm. And so when it rolls through so close to the party, having people see if they can even stay on their feet only to get back up to find that so-and-so is missing and is gone. Okay. Yeah, you talk about those tremors. Like, is it something that because it's moving through like, the homes above if the if the sewer underground isn't super close like is it something that like is this legend in the town like every once in a while their home will shake or something and they're like yeah. what is this you know and i just imagine like this moment of like your players if it's like the hometown they may know this mm-hmm. is a thing and they get in trouble for something and they're like our only choice is to go in the sewers and it's like yep. do we do we go down there or do we do would we rather face the guards you know like what is our <laughs> yep situation that we actually want to come up against alternatively and then this is i guess more from my my personal experience as someone who like grew up in southern california and has zero fear of earthquakes i I am just comedically imagining a town that has these shakes from under the ground and they're just kind of catch like oh yeah no we've got a big serpent down there sometimes it shakes the ground and the party's like i'm sorry you have what and it does and you're okay with that yeah, no, it just sort of happens, you know, sometimes the ground shakes, sometimes stuff like people just get eaten. We just, you know, try to avoid it. Don't go down there without like the, the, this things and you'll be fun. And everyone's well, like, it's, it's true, though. Like, I mean, in like in towns, like it, especially at least how I imagine it in a D&D world. Mm-hmm. And again, reading through the kit and Kinbo, they talk about this, too, of like it can be really difficult for people to just up and move their entire lives because yep. it's expensive. And you don't know anybody in another town. So people mm-hmm. may just be stuck there and be like, nah, we deal with this yep. because Which, we can't move. And we're either going to be scared out of our minds all the time or just accept it as a present reality. Which is very funny because I'm that person who's lived in California for a really long time. And it happens at work. Yep. And often my first thought is like, who's trying to move my chair? And, and I'm the only one in this. Oh, it's an earthquake. And then my yep. wife, who did not grow up here, um, recently experienced it in one of the taller buildings and had oh. a very hard time because she's like, why is the whole building moving? And I was like, well, that's the thing. To earthquake proof it, it's got to have some give so it can, mm-hmm. you know, yep. the, mo- the motion uh, can kind of roll through it. And she was like, oh, no, no, no. Yeah. Uh-uh. yeah. Plus, yeah. I'm, from, I'm from Michigan originally, and mm-hmm. I felt one earthquake my entire life and it was it woke me up from a dead sleep in my room growing up in michigan it like happened in like illinois or it was somewhere weird mm-hmm. it was like a very small one but like we all felt it and i was like I, it was just like 20 seconds of just like movement and i was like that's not a really big semi going through our neighborhood mm-hmm. like that was terrifying and like mm-hmm. everybody started calling each other like the entire neighborhood just like the phone lines just like lit up like what 
was happening, what was that? Like nobody knew what that was mm-hmm. until on the news later that night. I was like, oh no, it was an earthquake, you know? And like that could be exactly that experience for an NPC or like players rolling into a town and they feel that they get woke up in the middle of the night and they're in. And it's just like them shaking for five seconds. And then like you wake up the next day and be like, what was that? Did anybody else feel that? like, oh no, it's just a serpent. Oh, yeah, no, it's just, it's just, just, our, just it's our, serpent. our local <laughs> resident serpent. My, Don't worry about my, it. My favorite earthquake anecdote is waking up in the middle of the night to like me rolling around in bed and just going, oh, it's this again. Uh, <laughs> I, I like describing it as I was a hot dog at a 7 Eleven uh, warming machine. Oh, just yeah. Roll and roll and roll and roll. And that's awesome. So, my favorite part of the episode is because we're just, we call it homework, but it's one of the most fun assignments you could possibly have. So if we want to go around and talk about anything that people could um, read, watch, listen to, um, to kind of engage with the topic at hand. Um, well, not to promo the book card, but if you want to see the, the slithering blood fin is just one of several really terrifying deep sea aberrations. Uh, so you can definitely go and uh, check out the bestiary in call the nether deep for, for more juicy, juicy inspiration. <laughs> Uh, greed. Go, go now. Uh, yeah. Oh my gosh, those tentacle attacks. Everything about yeah, it's it's good. Just go. Yep. I was gonna say I I looked up a couple of things for this, and there's a there's a couple of lore things that you could really just from like history that you could look up. You know, like um, I'm gonna totally botch it, but Jormungan, I the uh, Norse. Jormungandr? Yes. The, the Viking sea serpent, like in Norse mythology, Norse mythology, like going and looking that up and reading about that. Like there's the ancient um, ideas of like the Leviathan that you could go mm-hmm. and read all about and get like elements and tidbits from those. Like those are obviously alluded to as being like world shatteringly big. Right. But like yeah. taking some of those elements and saying, what do we like about this? And the, and the beautiful part about you know, stuff that's written um, by D&D is like, oftentimes I will take stuff and add to it or take things away and put something new in, yep. you know, and like, there's always elements around serpent stuff because there's so mm-hmm. many, like the ancient Aztecs have some things around um, ancient serpents, you know, like looking up mm-hmm. some of those things and just spending a couple hours reading about ancient serpents um, yep. would be what I encourage people to do because there's so much. Yeah. I'm going to pivot so hard in a different direction for my first suggestion. You should go watch the Octonauts. I'm just throwing it out there. It's, I mean, because this whole time we've talked about making a pretty mm-hmm. terrifying version of this, but there's no reason that it has to be. It can be anything that you want it to be. Um, the other reason I bring it up is like to circle all the way back to some of the first bits that we had discussed was like, you want those real life touchstones. And so, I mean, you really watch these episodes and they're talking about real creatures, but it doesn't seem like these things could possibly be real yet. They certainly are. Go watch the Octonauts. I enjoy it when I watch it with my kids. So. Well, I, I think anytime, you know, one of the, one of the things I do in my car, I would never do this like in front of people, but like, as I'm, as I'm listening to like critical role or other actual play podcasts, I will try and imitate like the voices that people do to like, try and get my, you know, mm-hmm. accents down and stuff like that. But like, I think about in, in that same sort of vein, like thinking, like going back and watching the Anaconda movies, which I've never seen. Um, but I could go and see them. And like, whenever there is a serpent that you see, like just pause the video and describe what you saw so that you can get some of the action and like what you would actually say if this came up in a space again, 
I, I think movies do a really good job of when I when I play D and D as a player, I often think in terms of like I'm watching a screen and I get to control one of the players. So what am I seeing that's happening on the screen? And you can describe, you know, what you see when you're watching the movie mm-hmm. to better be able to describe what's happening when your players uh, come up against something like that. Yeah. Another thing certainly would be also uh, looking up real life sea, sea creatures. Um, especially if you look up the things that can be found in the deep, dark depths of uh, our real life oceans and looking at how those creatures move through the water, how they look, what kinds of ways they have adapted to the environment around them. Obviously, your environment as a DM, uh, wherever you place these creatures, is going to have a little bit more of a fantastical bend to them. But an environment shapes its creatures and if you can understand, and vice versa, a creature shapes its environment. And if you can understand how this massive set piece monster, how its presence would echo throughout the space you are trying to create, uh, how it would move, how other creatures, sentient or not, would treat it, uh, even how the landscape might look after uh, this creature has been staying there for a certain number of time. Um, that is always a a good starting point for me when it comes to building an encounter or building even uh, a, a piece of a world. The other side thing that is uh, based off of what you said about mimicking voices is uh, have fun making monster noises. That's my favorite part about these yeah. creatures is, is, is listening to sound effects from various video games and uh, podcasts and a bunch of other stuff and going, mm, I want to make that noise so I can terrify my players because th- that noise will come out of my my human-looking mouth. The worst thing is when I'm sitting at a table and I haven't thought through that, my players are like, what does it sound like? I'm like, oh gosh, I'm going to have to do this like in the moment. This is going to be awful and we're all going to laugh. But it's great. My my favorite is uh, since you had been mentioned watching the Critical Role podcast. I I don't know if you've gotten to the episode uh, in campaign two where they face the purple worms. Yes, but I I am I I'm able to do the Matt Mercer purple worm trill, and oh, it is oh yes, it is my favorite sound effect to make now. So I good. I feel like I feel like we can't leave without hearing it. Okay, I'm gonna try and make sure uh, Zoom doesn't cut it out. Um, oh yeah. that was terrifying because it did slightly cut it out but it's made it sound like it was echoing so it's even better (laughs) it did it was super creepy epic oh that was so good oh my gosh so so good and so for yet another pun on that wonderful note where can people go to find you out here on the interwebs um deep under the ocean wherever you may be and watch all the awesome stuff you're doing um, so uh, you can find me over on Twitter at Mackenzie Lane DA. That is M-A-K-E-N-Z-I-E-L-A-N-E-D-A. Uh, that is where I will be uh, continuing to yell about the wonderful and terrifying uh, deep sea aberrations that appear in the Nether Deep, as well as any of the other wonderful things that I helped work on in that book. Uh, that team and that adventure has so many pieces of my heart put into it, and I cannot wait for folks to read it and get their own hands on it and make it their own. Uh, I also on that Twitter, I talk about all the other cool stuff that I am working at uh, Wizards on D&D uh, when I am able to talk about it, uh, which is always exciting. So keep an eye out on my Twitter for that, because once more books are announced and I am free from my prison of NDAs, I will be happily shouting out about those projects there. Uh, I also, anytime I do stream appearances or podcast stuff, uh, the announcements go up on my Twitter. 
Perfect. Well, uh, again, McKinsey, we, we're happy to have you on the first time, ecstatic to have you on the second time. And of course, we're hopeful that we can have you on again. Yes, definitely. I would love to come back and, and make more monster noises and talk more monsters. With you. <laughs> yes. That's great. We yes. will we will definitely follow up on that because that was a terrifying purple worm noise to end on. Woo-hoo! We just want to thank McKinsey again for coming on, spending some time with us. And like we said, we will inevitably have her on again. And of course, if you want to tell us how you've been introducing massive monsters to your game, you can always email us at dungeonmasterblock at gmail.com. And of course, head over to your podcatcher of choice, be it Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, anything where you get podcasts, Podbean directly. You can leave us a review and a rating to help us get in front of more people. And of course, as always, the number one way is to just tell someone else about the podcast. And of course, you can head over to Twitter and follow us at DMS underscore block. That's at DMS block or follow us on Facebook to check out all the stuff we're doing. As always, the Dungeon Masters Block is a proud member of the Block Party Podcast Network, where you can check out shows like Detentions and Dragons, Dungeons and Dragons and Daughters, Diamnastics, and more. As always, we want to thank you for listening to the Dungeon Master's Block, the place where we come to talk about the Dungeon Master, the most important person in the game, the only person capable of playing God, killing characters, and lowering the egos of all the people at the table. I'm DM Neil. Good night and good luck. Goodbye.